Hello there. You're listening to The Box Office Show. I'm Ryan Hill. And I'm Dylan Johnson. Today we're going to talk about the box office numbers from last weekend and our box office predictions for this upcoming weekend, as always. We will also be continuing our series on Avatar The Last Airbender. Today we will analyze its second season, and we will do so with the help of a guest, our friend and fellow film fanatic, Nick Lyon. To go through some of the news real quick, Ed Asner, who you may know from his role as Lou Grant in both Lou Grant and the Mary Tyler Moore show, um, and then lending his voice to various projects, including Up and a lot of the animated superhero shows that we got uh, earlier in the century. He has passed away at 91, which is unfortunate. He is a true legend. The man got seven Emmy Awards, which is the most of any male actor. And five of them were for playing Lou Grant. So the man was incredible. He was as sure, like, tour de force, like, pure acting talent, pure comedy genius, and he will be sorely missed. Also, we have Paramount has pushed Top Gun Maverick from November 2021 to Memorial Day 2022, which is a little more fitting. But that has also made my film for the box office draft, Ghostbusters Afterlife. It has been moved into that November 19th slot. I don't know how I feel about that. It's out of the October timeline. It's out of that Halloween spirit. That might affect it negatively, but only time can tell. That's true. So it moved slightly away from the Halloween holiday, now more towards Thanksgiving. So they could be trying to play up more of that family aspect as opposed to the spookiness. So we will see if that bodes well for it. But yes, it's a good thing Top Gun Maverick was not any one of our selections. For the yeah, draft, or that would have been crazy, because this seemingly came out of nowhere. I don't know why Paramount all of a sudden decided to do it, um, but I guess they just wanted to play it really safe. So May 2022, you'll see Top Gun Maverick, and then later that year, because they also pushed back, that was originally Mission Impossible 7's date, so we'll get Tom Cruise in 2022, not 2021. Now we have our box office breakdown for August 27th to the 29th. Coming in first, as we predicted, was Candyman with $22.3 million. That's a little bit higher than I thought it was going to get. It is on the mark for you, Ryan. Congratulations. You predicted it correctly. Nia DaCosta is the first black woman to have a number one film at the box office, so congratulations to her, setting a new trend, hopefully. Mm-hmm. And she'll probably reinforce that trend when she directs the Marvels for... Marvel, so look out for that on the horizon. Uh, seems like a start to a great career for her. In second place, we have Free Guy with 13.5 million, which is a 26.7% drop. That's incredible. It's amazing. Old. Is doing gangbusters domestically. Got 80 million, and it's something that I mean, three months ago, no one could tell you what this film was about. So mm-hmm. really impressive for them and everyone involved. In third is Paw Patrol with 6.6 million. Jungle Cruise has five million, puts that in fourth place. Fourth place. That was a twenty percent drop, which also is very impressive for it, and it pushed it across the line. It has now made a hundred million domestic, and that 
aligns with Disney's announcement of a sequel, so we will be seeing more of The Rock and Emily Blunt in the Jungle Cruise franchise. After Jungle Cruise is the Aretha Franklin documentary Respect, starring Jennifer Hudson, that made $2.1 million this past weekend. The Suicide Squad comes in with $2 million. The Protégé with $1.6 million. The Night House, a horror film, got $1.2 million. And Black Widow made just shy of a million. And outside of the top 10, but still meaningful because of a milestone it crossed, F9 has hit 700 million worldwide. It was able to do it. I knew it. I knew it could do it. That's what I was hoping it would land at. That is perfect for my box office draft. It is a good start. I am very, very happy to hear that. And you, so with F9 and Suicide Squad, mm-hmm. you have quite the lead over my one film, Jungle Cruise. You're about to extend that lead with Shang-Chi, soon to be known as Shang-Chi, as it actually is. Um, that is coming out this weekend, Labor Day weekend. It's interesting because this is a holiday weekend that movies typically don't do well at Mm -hmm. since it's the end of summer. Most people are going to want to just use that extra day to stay home, stay in the sun. Uh, and so the record is held by 2007's Halloween for 30 million across the four day. So Shang-Chi will most certainly beat that record, but. Where will it land? That is the question. Mm-hmm. Industry projections are putting at 45 million to 55 million. Dylan, this is your film. This is in your roster. Yep. What do you think this will get? Now, I have to go above the industry projection just out of hope. Hope <laughs> that it will do well. Hope that it will start well as opposed to the Suicide Squad. So I'm going to throw it at 70 million. I'm going to say it hits 70 million. In the four day, certainly. Gotcha. I think... I go back and forth because I keep hearing the buzz for it and a lot of the previews are doing well. Apparently, it's only 20% behind what Black Widow's previews were. Mm-hmm. But it's Marvel Films. It's always going to be front-loaded. So I don't know how much of that can extend to the Sunday and Monday where it's not going to be the big, heavy Marvel fanboys that are going to show up because um, they're going to be there on the first day. So I I think it will get over the industry projections i think mm. so i want to say 60 million is like that range is a very confident projection uh as for the four day i think it could crack 70 million but i don't know if it'll be able to go 80 million even in the four day if it'll be able to match black widow but we will definitely see it'll be an interesting turnout obviously a lot is riding on this exclusive marvel film uh, in order to sort of gauge whether or not the fall movie season is going to be profitable at all. And of course, we have a stacked October, so we do want to see Shang-Chi do well. Uh, but how well will it do? We'll find that out next week. And now it's time for our main topic for tonight. That is Avatar The Last Airbender Season 2, Earth. We are here joined by our friend and film enthusiast, Nick Lyon. How are you, Hello. Nick? Uh, doing all right. Now, Excited to talk about Avatar, as I can never seem to stop doing. <laughs> Water. Earth. Fire. Air. Long ago, the four nations lived together in harmony. Then, everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. Only the Avatar, master of all four elements, could stop them. But when the world needed him most, he vanished. A 
hundred years passed and my brother and I discovered the new Avatar, an airbender named Aang. And although his airbending skills are great, he has a lot to learn before he's ready to save anyone. But I believe Aang can save the world. Now, we wanted to start out by talking to you about your relationship with the show, how that all started. So how did you first like come across Avatar? How did you be fall in love with it essentially? It was one of those shows that like for a long time I knew by reputation more than by like having actually sit and watched it. Right? Up until college I had maybe only seen like four episodes, maybe five total. Mm-hmm. But Coming into my freshman year, I got my hands on the box set of all three of the seasons. Mm. And in a weekend, I watched the whole entire thing, just front to end. Amazing. So you were a little bit late to the party, as opposed to Ryan and I. Uh, a little bit, yeah. Do you think, but, do you think that impacted your impression of it? Because we grew up watching it, essentially. So do you think that maybe changed your viewpoint of it a little bit, having a more mature opinion going into it? I mean, if we want to call freshmen in college mature. Um, well, comparatively to what, when we were six or seven or something, Dylan, you said you were like five when you first came across it. So probably around then, yeah. Not, I mean, freshman college is not the most mature you'll ever get, but certainly <laughs> I'm not saying it's comparable to a five-year-old, but <laughs> no, I definitely think like I come at it more from an appreciation of the craft of the show mm-hmm. rather than like a, I remember watching Aang fight, uh, Wow, brain. I remember Aang watching Aang fight uh, Fire Lord. Ozai. Jesus Christ. I kept trying to, I kept wanting to say Iroh. <laughs> it's not Iroh, it's Ozai. He would never fight. Rather Iroh. than like the, the big uh, comet arc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's when it's funny that you bring that up because, again, uh, my story is I did watch it when it was coming out and then for the longest time didn't touch it. And then, of course, the big wave happened when it launched on Netflix. So everyone revisited it, and I didn't do that initially. And so some things, and we'll talk about as we go through some of the episodes here, some of the things like clearly stick in my mind. I absolutely remember them clear as day from when I first saw it back as a kid. Mm-hmm. And one of those things in season three is that whole Sozin's Comet arc, that whole four-part thing. Like, that's just burned into my brain. Um, <laughs> burned. Yeah. So that... It's interesting that for you, you had that fresh perspective. You knew the reputation you knew was good. So going in, I'm sure you had those high expectations. But then also, you know, I mean, it's a Nickelodeon show. It was originally geared towards kids, and you're coming at it as a freshman in college. Um, but that didn't, none of that was an impediment to you enjoying it? Um, I mean, the only thing I would say is you can definitely notice there are a couple filler episodes, which, like, Honestly, every TV show ever made has them. Mm-hmm. But the big takeaway is just like for any kind of TV show, it still is marks and marks above anything else in its weight class. Mm-hmm. All right. So we will do what we did in analyzing season one, where we go through each episode and look at how the world building is developed, how the characters are created and developed over time. Um, but since we have Nick here, we want to make sure that he's able to give his opinions on the season as a whole and talk about some of the strengths that he identified uh, when he was watching it and the things that have stuck with him in regards to world building and character. 
So Nick, why don't you go ahead and talk to us about some of the things that Avatar does extremely well that makes it one of the best shows out there. Sure. So I think book two really plays to the show's strengths in a way that book one and book three kind of don't. Book two is primarily them going through a territory they don't really know. Like book one, you have a lot of like Katara kind of knows what's going on. And book three, you get, you have Zuko to the later part of the season kind of guiding them through. And at that point, they've like gathered enough information to really know what's going on. But book two, they have a lot of just, we don't know the space that we're in. This is new to us. And I think that really gives the setting a chance to shine in the sense of like, okay, welcome to the Earth Kingdom. This is the Earth Kingdom. Right, like obviously all of the different nations in Avatar are based off of different Asian countries. Right, uh, Demartino, I know, I can't list them off the top of my head. I know the Fire Nation is China. I believe the Earth Kingdom is based on Korea, if that's correct. Is that true? I, could, I thought my impression... I could be completely wrong. Yeah, my impression of it was that Fire Nation is Imperial Japan. Yes. And that... Your yes. kingdom is more aligned with China, which we saw sort of in like even the palace that we see, the mm -hmm. Earth King's palace, like is very similar to the Forbidden Palace. Yes. Um, and your kingdom correct. is very large, much like China. Um, so yeah, I believe that is the the parallel, the real world culture that they draw you, from. You you are correct, but point being that, like t taking from these real real world cultures, they build so much on top of that that particularly in season two you get to see so much of and you get to experience so much of the earth kingdom yep. uh, and the earth kingdom is just such an interesting place compared to like the water the water tribes and the fire nation like you're gonna hear me rant and rave about the episode zuko alone because <laughs> That episode alone could teach you everything you could possibly need to know about how world building works, how to how to create a setting and how to convincingly portray it in an audience to an audience that does not feel like you are lecturing them on history. Mm -hmm. It's just a beautifully crafted season of television that I think kind of gets overshadowed by the set pieces that season three has mm -hmm. and the like character moments season one has would you say that season two is your favorite season i am a little biased toff is also like 100 my favorite character by far for certain yeah that's like, why this is why i wanted to have you on for season two specifically i knew your love of toff so i wanted to make I, sure you could get on here and talk I will about live her and die for toff toff was the only good part of cora <laughs> mm -hmm. that's not true pabu was pretty good I would agree with you. I would I would think for myself that season two is probably my favorite out of the three seasons just because they're taking it to the next step that season one took. They're taking it to the next step. They're advancing it a little bit more. And they're not focusing entirely on this full arc that is beating the Fire Lord like season three is. That's the whole season three. They're just so right. like pigeonholed focused on beating the Fire Lord. Season three, you can breathe... And you can just focus on character building in simpler situations rather than focusing on the story on top of that as well. So we get a lot of great character moments in season two. And we get a lot of great sort of 
gray areas in season two because the Earth Kingdom is a lot more gray than the Fire Kingdom mm-hmm. and, and the Water Tribes, even though we do get a lot of that in the Fire Kingdom because they're supposed to be the cut and try bad guys and they want to, the creators of the show wanted to emphasize that the Fire Nation isn't always, you know, bad, but the Earth Kingdom is definitely like, they are very stoic, they are very set in their ways, but at the same time, they're very mysterious because they don't reveal what's underneath that stoic set in their ways attitude. Mm-hmm. So you get this sort of gray area where you can peel back the layers slowly. And that's why I love the entire arc of them being in Bossing Say and the the Dai Li. I love that entire arc of just conspiracy after conspiracy and peeling those layers off. And we'll get right. there, but just I absolutely love all of that. True. Yeah, I wanna hold off on saying what my favorite season is until I fully rewatch season mm-hmm. three, because I've been doing it in bits. Yeah, yeah. Um so so far I haven't started that, but again, just because of how strongly I feel about Sozin's Comet, that whole finale to everything. I want to say that season three would be my best, would be my best season. But what I can appreciate about season two is, as you guys have mentioned, the way it's so dynamic and peeling back more layers of the world. We get that deeper complexity that we talked a lot about in season one. But certainly, I mean, it is to the nth degree in this one with the Bossing Sang arc. I mean, other instances of seeing the Earth Kingdom and how it's not entirely black and white, this world. Um, I also like a lot of the environments that we go to. We visit, which I really appreciate some of the places we've been to already, like Omashu mm-hmm. and Kiyoshi Island. But then we also explore these other areas in the whole Earth Kingdom continent, like in Zuko alone and the chase episodes like seven and eight. They are in this Wild West type deal. Mm hmm. And then shortly after that, they go into a desert and then they go into a massive metropolis city in Ba Sing Se. And so we get a lot of those different environments, but we spend time with each of them. Like it's not just a one-off episode where a lot of season one is where we're at one place or one episode and then we just travel away. We get to spend time with a lot of these environments. And I think that helps flesh it out even further. Mm -hmm. So certainly with the world building season two i think did probably the most Mm -hmm. i would agree with that and like one really important thing to to note when it comes to the season two is that like this is the middle act of the story right Mm -hmm. like this is the the second act and the fact that they managed to make their second act so memorable and so cherished is an incredible feat second acts are notoriously difficult to write Mm mm-hmm and like difficult to coordinate in any kind of interesting way. But the fact that they created such an iconic centerpiece to their work is just a testament to the writing of this series. I think it's because they did something just so drastically different from the other two seasons that it just stands out. And so there's episodes in here that are just like masterclasses of different things, masterclasses in like character development, masterclasses in just animation and fight choreography and that stuff and master classes in uh basically story advancement in such a a perfect way that they do it especially towards the end the way that they capitalize on momentum and just keep building and building and building up until that like final moments of the last episode is just yeah. so wonderfully done that i think it's just excellent yeah 100 percent. i love that you brought that up nick of this being that second act of the mm-hmm. overall three book story that avatar is telling um 
and it's this is certainly a step up from season one for sure like i think that's undeniable and then of course there's a lot of people that as you guys do feel this is the best season and so to have the middle portion instead of being the sagging second act where we just middle around and nothing's really going on this stayed compelling stayed interesting and added on to all the complexity that we were already cherishing from season one but gave us so much more of that and it delivered it in incredible ways as you guys have mentioned i mean just perfect story advancement uh furthering the world building one other thing that i want to bring up here is and we'll definitely talk about it as we get towards the end but i mean this is the empire strikes back of avatar mm-hmm. the way that consistently we end on so many downer endings of the episodes like i remember season one it would always have that little nice chime tune that they would play at the end as they're like flying away on appa mm-hmm. uh with the story resolved and everything's like okay for this particular episode so many episodes in season two end with either a massive cliffhanger or the characters just being defeated or stopped by some mm-hmm. obstacle in some way in both the mid-season finale and the season finale our crew is just decimated one way or another mm-hmm. so i love that they also took this time to go a bit a little bit darker with the story mm-hmm. and have our heroes not only face obstacles that really really challenge them but that they ultimately are unable to overcome at this time in their journey yeah i think another point i want to make real quick is that another reason this is one of my favorite seasons it it is my favorite season is probably because i have that nostalgia factor when i was younger season two was probably the season i saw the most often just because i think season one came out a little before i started watching the show so i came in late on season one and then season three i was doing other things i was watching other things so i didn't get all the way to that Sozin's Comet arc at the end. But season two, I was there front to end. I watched the whole thing. And there were just so many... It's because of those downer endings that I'm not used to as a kid. Those get burned into my into my retinas, into my memory. Like Appa getting kidnapped, Jet dying. Like these things that are just so dark for a kid's show just impacted me to the point where I was surprised by it and I was impressed by it as a child. And so... That nostalgia factor definitely impacts my decision as to what I think is my favorite season. Same as you, Ryan, with your uh, impression of Sozin's Comet in that finale. There is one more one more note I want to throw on here, and then we can probably move on to the main event. Mm-hmm. But one one important thing to remember about how they produce TV shows, and particularly how they produce children's TV shows, is they very much play it by ear, right? So. When they were making season one of Avatar, they were probably looking to get funded for the next two seasons. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, play it a little bit ex- safer. Hey, maybe we don't push the boundaries yet on this. Once we are more secure in what we are doing, then we start taking risks. Mm-hmm. Then we start saying, hey, what if children's content was a little darker? What if we went a little bit more extreme with this? What if we went deeper? What if we went into politics? Yeah. Like... When, once a show has been renewed, it feels more comfortable to push the boundaries for what it can be. And I think they really had a lot of boundaries they wanted to push with Avatar, and they just didn't get the opportunity to in the first season, leaving the second season as their wide open door to what they wanted to do. I would say that, that, that I'm, I agree with you, and that definitely works in their favor, because this is a kid's show and it's developed for kids, but it gets darker as it goes on. So 
the show itself matures as its audience matures. And so that's what keeps the audience coming back as what keeps the uh, on top of just the great story. It's what keeps them committed to this whole three seasons and probably could have committed to six, ten seasons if they really wanted to, even though, of course, they weren't going to do that. And like because they're so focused on creating a show that appeals to a general audience, but also engages you critically, even though you're a child and engages you in critical thinking to develop you as you mature yourself. And so I think that was very smart on top of yeah. being like a, a business decision when developing a TV show and not wanting to go crazy with a dark children's show right away. Unlike some other shows like Courage the Cowardly Dog that just like takes off with that immediately. That it, fortunately was also a success, but I would argue not to the point that Avatar is, but that's for many reasons. Right. Okay, so we are going to go ahead and dive into our episode-by-episode episode analysis, and we will start off with, of course, the season premiere, The Avatar State. Some major world-building elements came through here. We not only get the spirit oasis water that set up, that pays off way later down the line. That was a full season-long Chekhov's gun, um, but we also get our first look at lightning generation we saw iroh redirect lightning in the storm in season one but now we see that azula is capable of generating lightning we also see that she has blue fire so we know from these two things alone that she is a very powerful character someone to watch out for a very prodigious firebender um so that like those world building elements of seeing these new aspects of firebending the fact that based on somebody's uh skill level with it that the fire can change color right and of course we know in the real world blue hotter than uh orange or red fire so that immediately connects to us um but it mm. also reinforces a character element they're trying to uh shore up azula as this this villain that we need to watch out for this new big bad um that we should be concerned about in mm -hmm those world building elements certainly play into that. Uh, some other interesting world building elements that I wanted to just shout out <laughs> among the ostrich horses that they got in the earth kingdom. <laughs> they always have those fun little animals, um, either mixed matches of real world animals um, or animals that are just leveled up and doing things that they aren't doing in real world. Mm -hmm. um, so that was interesting to see. We also have the greater understanding of how the kingdom the earth kingdom is dealing with the war so we see not only a lot of the injured that are at general fong's uh his little fort Gone there ground. yeah but we also see through general fong we see some of the military reactions to somebody as powerful as the avatar clearly they're going to want to weaponize him in order mm -hmm. to finish the war much quicker and so we see how that plays out through the episode. And that's the whole focus of it. Um, so I appreciated that outlook on it because that was a very realistic take on how some people would respond uh, in that situation. And the final biggest aspect of world building here comes with the Avatar State, where we get to learn more about that. Uh, Aang is not able to trigger it at will. It only really comes during emotional distress when he's in essentially fight or flight mode mm -hmm. uh, when he needs to survive. And we learn that if he dies during the Avatar state, 
the cycle is broken, which is very critical information. Mm -hmm. So while it is the time when he's the most powerful, it is also the time when he's the most vulnerable. So that takes a power that we have seen, right? Some element of the world that previously wasn't entirely well defined. Like we sort of understood when it happens. It's not like it just happens. It does come when he's in those dire situations. But now we get a more defined uh, rule system for that avatar state. We know that it's not all powerful. Um, and we also know that it does sort of serve as a weakness for him as well as his greatest strength. Mm -hmm. So I appreciated that as well. Yeah, of course. I think it's important that he can't just have, you know, the ultimate card to play at any situation where he can just be in the avatar state and he could just win. It's got to, there's gotta be some reason why he can't just do that every time. And that is the clear and cut reason you don't want to end the cycle of the avatar because that leaves the world vulnerable to fall to its own demise. So I appreciate that as well. I think that's really important. We have some character development moments, big character moments here. Aang has a lot of character development in this episode when he agrees to willingly try and get into the Avatar state in order to defeat the Fire Lord now rather than later because he sees the cost of war and he thinks that if he there is a way where he can end it now, he will do it. And that is, of course, a noble gesture, but a false one at that. He, he knows there's no way he can trigger himself, and so he's willing to go through all these tasks and trials. General Fong eventually gets to his wit's end, and he tries to trigger it emotionally by attacking the Avatar and then feigning like he killed Katara by suffocating her. That finally triggers Avatar into that emotional distress, that defense mechanism that makes him go into the Avatar state, and he's just attacking with the only thing that can take him out of the Avatar state. It's Katara yet again. So I think there's a big character one where Aang learns that there is no shortcut, there is no easy way to defeating the Fire Lord because he's not a master avatar yet. He's still just a child. He's still only mastered two elements, and he still has no control of the avatar state. So he needs to progress his training more, and he learns that lesson here. Which, interestingly enough, kind of parallels the thing that Zuko learns in this episode. Right, like... Zuko's whole thing in this episode is basically that he he won't just accept an invitation to go back. He has to do this the honorable way. Mm -hmm. He has to go through and complete the task he was set with because that is the only way he can do this. He has to do the, the legwork. He can't just ride on royal privilege again. Mm -hmm. Good. That's a very good point. And Azula, we get an introduction to her. We learn how evil she is. It really sets her up to be the, the big bad for the rest of the season, kind of like uh, what's his name from the season one? Commander Zhao. Commander Zhao, thank you. Kind of like Commander Zhao was the overarching villain for season one. We have Azula for season two. We see that she's an advanced firebender. We see that she has an emotional hold over Zuko, which is uh, important. It's a very important layer to add to that dynamic. More personal than it was with Commander Zhao. And we see that she's ruthless. She's willing to do her father's bidding and kidnap her uncle and brother, calling them traitors in order to bring them back to the Fire Nation because they're failures. And she's she's more than willing to do whatever is necessary to bring them back. Right. And the way in which she does it, though, I think is also very revealing of her character. Mm -hmm. She doesn't come out and try to overpower them or just attack them with a bunch of soldiers or anything. 
she plays on what she knows to be Zuko's greatest desire, which is to come home and achieve his father's approval or like just finally receive that. And so when she meets Zuko and Iroh, she is trying to manipulate him by saying, oh, there's a potential coup going on in the Fire Kingdom. Father needs all the people he can trust back in the kingdom, mm-hmm. back home. So you and Iroh need to come sail home with me, right? And that's the way that she's trying to rope him in. And of mm-hmm. course, Zuko is intrigued by that because while he doesn't have the avatar, he's still like the ultimate end goal of like getting the avatar is so that he's able to come home, um, mm-hmm. get his honor back, and then also again get his father's love, which he has never gotten. So when he sees this as his chance to finally return home, he sort of jumps at it, even though Iroh knowingly is like, ah, this doesn't sound like my brother and this certainly doesn't sound like azula so i thought it was interesting the way zuko sort of snapped at iroh and was even willing to just leave iroh to go home um and of course iroh wasn't going to let that happen and of course we find out it is in fact a ruse and they have to battle azula uh and that leads to the ending of this episode which is where zuko and iroh cut off their top knots which is another sort of element of world building is that signature of royalty. Um, it's mm-hmm. something you see on all the royal members of the Fire Nation. And so now that they cut that off, it's severing ties to the Fire Nation, which of course is a crucial element of Zuko's identity, mm-hmm. is him being that prince. And this pushes him further away from being able to return home. Now he's a fugitive. Now he's being pursued by the Fire Nation as opposed to being the banished prince that soon once he gets the avatar will be able to have his honor restored and take his rightful place as the heir um so it pushes him further from that goal which we saw he was still really really gripped by um that sort of that defining feature of him is wanting to get that a- approval from his father and that'll come around at the very end of the season but anything mm-hmm. else we want to share about the avatar state the season premiere um one interesting kind of like world building element they throw in is like really presenting the different aspects of firebending like in a way that you definitely have not seen before up until this point which they kind of do in parallel to presenting like different philosophies about the fire nation and like this is the point really where zuko's path starts to branch away from the fire nation's nationalistic ideas it's just a very it's a very well placed thematic idea of just showing how diverse the firebending is at the same time zuko realizes no i don't have to be like the fire nation even though i'm the prince it's just a very well well placed little bit for sure all right in the second episode the cave of two lovers this episode is one of the ones that i have had burned into my brain there's two in season two that for sure i've always held on to Mm -hmm. um so i adore this episode for a multitude of reasons but the biggest one is i mean well the comedy is excellent in this so that secret tunnel (laughs) secret tunnel classic song is this real or a legend oh it's a real legend and it's as old as earthbending itself 
lovers forbidden from one another. A war divides their people, and a mountain divides them apart. Built a path to be together. Yeah, I forget the next couple lines, but uh, then it goes. Secret tunnel, secret tunnel, through the mountain, secret, 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 secret tunnel, yeah. So they're great, but then also we get a lot of development with Katara and Aang's relationship here, which as we see throughout season two is really essential to Aang's character. Um, and so... That is not only important, but also for me as a kid who had a crush on Katara, I was getting some vicarious enjoyment out of Aang, finally getting closer to uh, revealing his attraction to Katara. Um, and we don't get to see the kiss at all, right? It was an off-screen kiss when the torches that they had were going out. And they were like, we need to trust in the power of love. That's the one thing that will get us through this cave. So we need to try it. Um, and then afterwards, the crystals light up. Not because of kiss, but because of that was how the tunnel was set up. Once it's completely dark in there, the crystals will light up. And that's how they're able to find their way to each other. Um, the two lovers that the cave mm -hmm. is named after. But that's why this one has stuck in my mind for so long um and then as well the comedy as you guys mentioned secret tunnel is incredible also a moment at the end when Sokka has a red mark on his forehead and she's like what happened to your forehead and he goes the dude playing the guitar i don't know what his name was but um he goes don't react now but i think that guy might be the avatar and then he slams his hand into his forehead in the biggest face palm of all time great stuff there but yeah for me this episode the advancement of Aang and Katara's relationship was very significant yes I also like learning about the badger moles we get their first glimpse of them and the first kind of tiny bit of knowledge that they are the first earthbenders and we also learn that they love music which is kind of fun we also get a little hint of those octopus waterbending maneuvers that Katara is trying to teach Aang. So we get a little more waterbending before Toph shows up because he's still looking for an earthbending master. He's going to get Boomy at Omashu. Uh, I love learning about the lore of Omashu. I love learning about how they had to, like you were talking about, how they had to find each other in the tunnels and then one of them died because of war. And so she created the one big city named after the two of them, Oma and Shu, Omashu. Um, I love the idea that Appa does not like confined spaces. He likes those open, airy, sort of free reign for him to fly around in. And so he was very hesitant to go into the cave. Um, I like, I think this is the first time we get a glimpse of Fire Nation tanks as well. I don't remember any Fire Nation tanks in the first season, particularly. There may have been, but we definitely I get... I want to say there were a few in the last couple episodes. There may be. Like when they're attacking the North Pole, there might be. Yeah, I think so. We get a real good glimpse of them in this episode. Cause they, <laughs> they, right in the beginning when they blow up the 
uh, cave, the entrance of the cave. We also see that they have anti-air. We see those, like we saw in the first season, we see them shooting fireballs up into the air at Appa, and it's an impenetrable way to get in over the mountains. They have to go under. Absolute crack shots with catapults. Mm-hmm. I love all of that. Um, for me, this episode is another one that's burning in my brain. It's the one I've seen probably the most out of all the episodes in this entire show. Just by coincidence, somehow, it's always the one that they're showing on Nickelodeon every time I flip on the channel. So I know this like episode kind of like the back of my hand. I, I love uh, just how it all plays out. I love watching Katara and Aang develop their relationship, like you were saying. It's just it's it's one of my favorite episodes from the show. I definitely have a lot of nostalgia for it. I I have a lot of nostalgia for uh, Secret Tunnel, the song. That's always great. I just really like this episode. Yeah, it's a it's a really good episode. One one thing I did kind of want to keep building on though was like they do a really good job of giving you a sense for what the Earth Nation is without outwardly telling you, mm-hmm. right? Like. Having a narrative about two lovers who can't see each other. Okay, we've inherently set up a society that has rules and expectations. Like, it evokes images of, like, obviously Romeo and Juliet. Like, that that gives you a very specific sense of what the people in this area are like. And cross that with, like, the earth the earthbending and the badger mole lore. And you have solid creation mythology for a story like that. Or not creation mythology, but like narrative mythology. It just sets up the expectations so that when we get to something like Toph later in the season, you're not absolutely gobsmacked when you see, oh, she lives in a really repressed society that doesn't really allow either blind children or children who like, not, or like, uh, ah, stumbling on my words here, not necessarily super accepting of people who are different even if that difference is an advantage to them. It's just a very clever way they did. They layered that in just underneath the silly story of how Omashu got its name. Gotcha. And then another element to this episode, Zuko and Iroh, again, furthering the arc that he is on. We get to see more silliness, good comedy of Iroh risking his life to get some tea. Or what he hopes to be T. Um, and then that forces them to visit a town and get help from some of the locals. A woman named Song is able to heal Iroh's uh, rash that he gets from that plant that was not T. Um, and it's interesting here because she connects with Zuko because he clearly has a scar. She shows the scar that she has on her leg as she received from the Fire Nation. So mm-hmm. she is sharing with him how she has also been hurt by the fire nation uh and at the end of the episode she's also trying to encourage him let him know oh it's okay now the avatar is here so it'll get better of course for zuko that is the exact opposite of how he feels the avatar while a symbol of hope to everyone else is a reminder of the fact that he is still banished is still a failure uh, and that's just another scar that he has to carry with him so that was another interesting component of this episode and to finish it all off we had a great cliffhanger leading into the next episode 
where they arrive at Omashu, only to find that it has a Fire Nation banner hanging from it. It has been conquered. Now we get Season 2, Episode 3, Return to Omashu. When we talked about in Season 1, when they first got to Omashu, I gave, it was right after the episode where Kyoshi Island is attacked and you were talking about how you were upset that uh, Aang saved the town and he didn't get that big moral lesson that like his his presence has consequences. Mm-hmm. You're talking about your disappointment in that? Yep. And I mentioned that Omashu gets set up for that lesson later. And like his presence doesn't have a direct consequence on Omashu being conquered. But just the fact that he has that lesson of like the Earth Kingdom is touchable and it can still be conquered is sort of that lesson that he's getting used to and he's learning. He's like embracing this concept of war as a perpetual thing in motion that is constantly changing. And so this is his big like he sees this place that he's already been to that we've already been to that is that was seemed impenetrable that had King Bumi, who is the legend like running it and it has been taken over like that immediately like the next time we see it is just conquered um for some world building we learn the circuses exist <laughs> that's kind of fun pentapods which are the little sucker things in the sewer that Zaka uses to devise the escape strategy for all the earth kingdom citizens um boomy talks about neutral jing which is just waiting and listening which is a big earth bending principle which sets up toff's introduction later and my favorite part of the episode chi blocking which is such a, a, a an incredible thing to introduce into this world because it's emphasizing this idea that their bending is a product of the flow of chi in their body and that you can mm-hmm. block that chi and stop that bending for a temporary time, sure, because it eventually your pressure points will relax and your bending will come back. But I love how it is also emphasizing sort of non-directly that chi, your flow of chi is such a, big part of how bending flows throughout your body and that comes back later when ang at the end of the season goes to the eastern air temple to learn to block unblock all of his cheese completely so that he can enter the avatar state willingly and so it's just introducing these eastern concepts into the show gradually so that when they become huge parts of the show huge big concept parts that it is easier to understand this concept of chi and how it flows within you also yeah. i just love tylee you were talking about how you had a crush on katara dude i had a crush on tylee <laughs> tylee is the best she's so fun she doesn't want to hurt anybody she's just doing what azula wants her to do she's just getting tylee. bullied into doing things by azula tylee's just doing cartwheels like, yeah that's true <laughs> she just wanted to be a circus performer and azula another way we see how evil she is she endangers her so much just to make her leave the circus and join her team like what a terrible person and friend azula is yeah the show very much goes out of its ways to turn us against azula Mm -hmm. which is fair yeah there's another thing that i don't really like about season three is like the first half they try and pull that back and make you sympathize with azula which i understand makes it more impactful when she goes full crazy in the second half of that season but it does sort of like walk back on all the horrible things she did on season two but that we'll save that conversation for a later time in this all of season two which i i didn't remember it being but azula is just evil the entire time there's no sympathy going her way there's no moments where we're like on Azula's side, they full send her as being the antagonist for the season and they like go full throttle really, which I 
appreciate as a viewer. Yeah. I think that's why she's such a memorable villain. Like mm-hmm. she kind of taps into the to what I would call like the nineties Disney principle. Mm-hmm. Where it's just like, yeah, this character is doing evil, maniacal things and there's no redeeming qualities, but they're kind of fun. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay, and we also meet May in this. And I rewatching this episode. I know certainly in season three, she gets better and we get redemption arcs for them as well. But in this episode with May, I thought she was a terrible person as well, or at least an awful yeah. sister. The way that she, I mean, her whole personality is to be sort of like jaded and disinterested with everything. But the way that she doesn't care in the slightest that her brother, her infant brother is missing, presumably kidnapped by the other people. They don't know that he just was following Momo around and happened to walk out with everyone. Mm-hmm. Like she, to the best of her knowledge would believe that she, the baby's been kidnapped. Doesn't really care when Azula shows up, she's ready to just leave and do whatever Azula wants to do without knowing if her baby brother is safe. Then when they go to do the trade with Boomy, she agrees with Azula that, huh, trading Boomy for my baby brother isn't a fair trade so let's try to fight these people granted they didn't know it was the avatar and that they weren't gonna win right away but she still was like yes let me risk hurting this baby brother in the process or like somehow just something going wrong or not being able to complete the trade and then Mm -hmm. they lose boomy and then also lose the baby brother like i just could not believe how nonchalant she was about the whole situation. And then even like they lost that battle and they didn't get the baby brother back. It's Mm -hmm. Aang who has to come and return the baby to the distraught parents, which is another interesting, I mean, an important element about Aang's character. We see him smiling as he does that. These are Fire Nation leaders, uh, like the governors of this new Ozai, the way they renamed it. And probably not going to be the greatest people. I mean, if you're being appointed to oversee a city, I'd imagine is as important as Omashu. Um, the things that you would have to do in order to get that role, probably not the greatest mm-hmm. individuals. But we see that, and we do as a viewer, care that they get their family complete again, that the baby comes home safe and sound, and that they rejoice. Um when that does happen and so we like ang are happy that even though they're fire nation right they're wearing the colors and the sigils of the people that are the enemy it's a happy ending that they get their child back um so an interesting element about not only ang's character but the way this show consistently as you just mentioned with azula in season three they'll always try to add another dimension instead of trying to keep it as clear black and white good evil mm-hmm. they throw dimensions into it they show that there are people on both sides and even people as despicable as azula um do have some elements that aren't the worst but i mean she is pretty bad mm-hmm. anything else with this episode to touch on uh, i just like the cheat blocking and i like when Sokka devises the pentapox plan to get out of the city Dude, good thing they didn't just shoot all the sick people. Like, just kill them off. Yeah. 
it was a real risk to take in hindsight, but <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm it saying. is a kid's show. So yeah, obviously it was going to work out, but I was like, if this were the real world, I mean, this was an adult. That would be very dangerous. <laughs> they would be absolutely toasted. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they have firebending. They have the ability to wipe out that plague in a more realistic way. Exactly. It, like, that's literally how at their fingertips. <laughs> let, let me clarify. They would be toasted. They would absolutely be fried. <laughs> Yeah, one other, just one last moment again related to Aang with Boomy, um, is not only does he get that chance to understand, okay, neutral Jing, waiting for your time to strike. Um, so that's what Boomy is doing. He's going to just wait for his time to strike. We will see that come to fruition later on in season three. But in addition to him getting that little hints about Toph, someone who's a skilled earthbender is going to be able to wait and listen. Um, that's key for how Aang realizes that Toph is a teacher he's intended to to have. Um, but when Boomy is like, yo, I'm going to stay behind and wait for the right time to strike, Aang ends up respecting that wish. Remember, Aang was committed to trying to find Boomy throughout this episode, even when he got all the civilians out. That was priority number one, but then he also wanted to get Boomy. Uh, and then when Boomy mentioned that he was completely fine he'll be okay just leave him be and respects that and moves on mm -hmm. all right all good for this episode we good yeah all right we can move on to season two episode four the swamp this isn't my favorite of episodes i like parts of it i like the world bending aspects of it and i like learning more about how everything's connected and it does set up Toph really well, like incredibly well. But I don't know, there's something about it that is just a little bit slow for me to watch. Not a lot yeah. happens. It's just not like an exceptional, like it, it's just a lot of really good setup is what well, it is. You don't like, you don't like the Florida men? Uh, <laughs> the Bayou Benders? I do love the Bayou Benders. Yay. Yeah, this, I sort of agree with you. I do think, especially in to season one, season two, they're just bangers all the way through all the episodes i think are essential mm -hmm. like i made that claim with season one but it's even it's definitely true for season two. yeah even better to claim about season two because all of them are essential and as you said this one delivers a lot of solid setup mm -hmm. as well as good character moments we get to see in the visions that they have in the swamp katara of course sees her mother and Sokka sees ua so we see these different important people that they have in their lives so that is a very crucial way that the characters develop there. And in terms of world building, we get this idea introduced of everything is connected, which is a motif that will arise many times throughout season two. And of course, again, is uh, a call, called back to in the finale in an, in an important way. So the swamp guy, I forget what his name is. But his name's that, Guy. Really? Yeah, his name's That's Guy. Incredible. The swamp monster guy friendly name guy uh he gives that lesson to ang that the tree like the tree that's at the center that's actually the entire swamp everything is just coming from that tree and the lesson there is in the real world everything is connected and so ang is able to take that lesson to heart he applies it when he's trying to locate appa that's another scenario when appa was captured so 
Aang applies that lesson, immediately is able to use his uh, power in order to locate Appa by connecting with the swamp. And we also see the fact that the swamp benders, the bayou benders, they are connected to the water tribes, essentially. At some point, they had to migrate away into the swamp, but that shows that the North Pole and South Pole are not the only places where waterbenders are living. And so that also shows, I mean, they're connected to their one big tribe, essentially. So I do appreciate this episode for including those elements, mm-hmm. but I agree that this is one of the the weaker ones. Yeah, definitely. There, There is a really interesting thing the show does by giving you new waterbending tribes, so to speak, mm-hmm. in that the show is kind of telling you that the characters don't have all the information. Right, like they, Katara even being like an educated from within society person being so wrong about that, like sets up for a lot of things where they will be tricked, they will be deceived, like just the world is much vaster than these kids are prepared for, mm-hmm. and this is kind of a good way they set the, they set that up and like kind of subtly put that idea in the viewers' minds. Very true. All right, episode five, Avatar Day. This is also another one that I think is one of the weaker ones. I love this episode. Really? I okay. really do. Pop I off think about it. there's just something about the first off, the Rough Riders are really cool. Like just in general, everything about them is super cool. They're each so uniquely crafted in terms of like character design. They're so perfectly drawn for their specialty. They ride like rhino bulls or whatever that are super cool. Just they ooze awesomeness <laughs> in terms like in comparison to just normal fire nation cronies that are just losers who shoot fire out of their hands. These guys are just so unique and dynamic and I love everything about them. On top of that, I love learning things about uh, Kiyoshi. I love murder mysteries. <laughs> I love... Sokka going back to Kyoshi Island like his first question is where Suki like he's trying to find her like that makes me feel good in my heart um it's just everything about this is clever and then I love just the payoff of they find out all these answers they find out all the clues and they're like Kyoshi didn't do this and then Kyoshi just shows up this big whoosh of wind and she, the first thing she says is I killed Jin the Conqueror it's just twist I love it everything about this episode like I remember starting and thinking this is one of the weaker episodes of season two and then watching it is just such a nostalgia because I just love this episode so much that it hit just the right way because it was just nonstop me just eyeballs on the screen watching this episode. Yeah, this, this episode is an interesting one because like in the grand skeleton of the season two narrative like this is a bit of an unnecessary bone. Right, like if you had to trim some fat from anywhere in season two, I almost want to say this would be the episode to do it. Mm-hmm. You could get away with not having this episode. Yeah, you and definitely everything could still be cohesive. But on the other hand, it does give us a lot of really interesting insight. Mm-hmm. Right, like this is really the first glimpse into the idea that not all the avatars are like Aang. Yeah. Right, like. 
up until this point, you've kind of been under the premise of the avatars are all, all kind of have this peacekeeper mentality. Whereas Kiyoshi is be gay, do crimes, but superpowered version. And yes. you just get this, like, another sense of conflict building within Aang that maybe I'm not doing this right. Mm -hmm. Like, this kind of is a very, very subtle setup to what will eventually come become him doubting, like, should I kill Ozai? Mm -hmm. Should I be exercising more force as the Avatar? Like, am I doing... Am I being me wrong? Yeah. Which is a really weird sentence, but I think it's grammatically correct. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think the setup of the episode being like them proving that the Avatar wouldn't just murder somebody, and then it turning out that in a way she did, but in a justified way, sure, but the Avatar, the previous Avatar, chose to kill someone in that moment, and that Chin is also at fault here, but she made that choice. She severed that line. And that sort of thinking that uh, Aang has to approach is, is this how the Avatar is supposed to act? Is this what the choice the Avatar is supposed to make? Because he is the descendant of that person. And he ha he has to go through that mental exercise of, should I be that Avatar? Do I ha Am I already that Avatar? Am I going to be that Avatar? Or can I be my own Avatar? And he just is not exactly. sure at this point. And it's just genius how they wrote that in there because each avatar is unique and distinct in their own way. And they're all there just to help each other get through this crazy thing called life. And I think this is such a good episode because Kiyoshi is just so distinctly different from Aang. They have such different ways of thinking. And so it was a good choice to use Kiyoshi. It's also great because they are essentially showing you what an earth-bending native Kyo like avatar is like and how different it is to ang's perspective which shows you how different the the bending style of earth is to air because they are the polar opposites of one another which comes full circle when ang is trying to learn how to earth bend that's like I a was, whole, whole thing later but i was gonna just... bring up that like kiyoshi kiyoshi would be like the counter avatar to Aang mm -hmm, absolutely in terms of the elements but mm -hmm. It's a it's very good foreshadowing to how much Aang is going to struggle in earthbending. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Just because earthbending is such a different element than airbending. Yep. And just to add some other things at this episode, because again, I'm just in comparison to all the other season two episodes, that's why this is one of the weaker ones. Again, when you're talking about any episode of Avatar, it's gonna be enjoyable. It's gonna keep you interested. It's gonna be mm -hmm. solid. Um but this one, just in comparison to all the others, kind of paled. Um, but I do think it's interesting how we see that Kiyoshi Island was created manually by Kiyoshi, right? Separating mm -hmm. uh, it off from the mainland in order to keep away Jin the Conqueror. We also see more of like what the Avatar's duties were back before we had this 100-year war going on with Fire Nation trying to conquer the whole joint. There were other warlords that were trying to do something similar and so the avatar in some ways would be tasked with stopping that so we see how kiyoshi dealt with it um we also see in this episode with zuko and iroh zuko is now actively stealing things in the previous episode he stole somebody's dual swords uh, because he was sort of a schmuck and was trying to humiliate 
Iroh by making him dance in order to get a gold piece. And mm. this one, now he's stealing bread, stealing items. Uh, and Iroh is aware of it, disapproving of it. Um, and he's trying to push Zuko to understand, like, you're not going to be able to go back home with honor restored and have approval from your father. Like, that's essentially not going to happen. And Iroh's trying to prepare Zuko to come to terms with that. But he also doesn't want to make him in complete despair. At the mm. end of the episode, we see Zuko in just a really brutal way cast off Iroh and say that uh, he needs to go out on his own because there's nothing to gain from traveling together. Mm -hmm. Just the way he phrased that was, oof, stab in the heart for Iroh. Yeah. But, of course, Iroh knows that this is what's going to have to happen. He needs to chart out this path, um, this next part of the path on his own and face struggles by himself and really test himself. So Iroh lets him do it and then also offers him the ostrich horse thing, which really important showcase for Iroh's character. He is mm -hmm. always trying to care for and provide for Zuko, um, even at the expense of himself sometimes. So that was just a really key moment for them. And of course, that sets up a brilliant episode that we will get to that I know Nick is itching to talk about. Um, but then the one other thing about this episode is it had the guy foaming at the mouth. It's fantastic. It is so good. That is a meme. Uh, yes, one of the top tier memes of our time, truly. <laughs> so this episode gifted us that. So that's why it is essential. It couldn't be cut. Mm -hmm. We had to trim down the fat. It had to come from somewhere else because we need this guy foaming at the mouth. It is essential. It's absolutely hilarious. <laughs> and speaking of memes of our time. The boulder is in the next episode. Oh my god, I love... Can you smell what the boulder <laughs> is cooking? It's so good. The next episode is season 2, episode 6, The Blind Bandit. Can I just say that my theory is that from this episode all the way to the end of season 2, season 2 is just non-stop. Like, the arcs from here all the way to the end flow so well into each other, and the episodes flow so well together, that it's just... You just get caught up in it, and it is just a nonstop season from here on out. Dylan, yes. I was driving home from us watching West Side Story. Yes. And I was thinking about some of the things I would say. And I was going to come in after I was like, yeah, Avatar Day was all right, not the best. I was going to be like, season like two, episode six to the ending is just pure masterclass television. It really Every single episode is stunning. It's incredible. It's I'm like not saying that. Every single episode after Toph is introduced is a perfect episode. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it does line up. It does. It does match perfectly. It's like the second half of the last season of Breaking Bad, where it just does not end. And it just keeps going and building. And that's what I love about season two is that it just flows so well. There's no break in an arc. There's no episode to, to do something else where they go off on a side adventure. It is just. There is an arc that goes into the next arc that goes into the next arc that goes into the next arc and it just builds and builds and builds until that very end. And it's just fantastic. Anyway, the blind bandit, we get our introduction to Toph. It is one of the most funny things in the world. Way to introduce a character is WWE earthbending. The boulder feels conflicted about fighting a young blind girl. Sounds to me like you're scared, Boulder. 
the boulder's over his conflicted feelings, and now he's ready to bury you in a rock avalanche. Whenever you're ready, the pebble. <laughs> yeah, it's again. I mean, obviously speaking to me, another one of the great episodes that I remember things about. Obviously, the boulder stuck in my mind because we love the rock. Unfortunately, Dwayne Johnson did not voice him, which I thought would have been hilarious. Mick Foley, who is a WWE wrestler, did do that. Um, he did a great job. The boulder, iconic. Listen, but if Dwayne, if Dwayne Johnson isn't the boulder in the live action adaptation, we throw the whole series out. Honestly. That would be incredible. <laughs> That'd be I would forgive for, everything else. He's a father. His he's got like a kid that's getting to that age where she could watch this show. That'd be great. He could do another Moana moment where he's in the show and the daughter doesn't believe that it's actually him. It's not even a big part. I know. It's literally just like the one episode, maybe like a couple other appearances. He could come through one day. But you know, Nick, remember from class, you have to pay fifty million dollars to get the rock in your movie, so could be too big I of mean, a price tag. It's Amazon. That is that is true. Well, is it Netflix, right? Oh, it the is live Netflix. action one. Oh, Netflix. But I mean, to be fair, that's also. I mean, they're a behemoth, so yeah, they yeah. could do it. They could fork it over. But yeah, for five the, minutes. <laughs> but the the world building, as you mentioned, we get to see the bending right have an actual relationship to the culture and recreational activities. So mm -hmm. not only are there the Earth Bending Academies that people go to as if they're karate dojos but they have combat sports that have earthbenders in them which entirely makes sense that your top athletes are going to be these earthbenders that can do incredible feats um, and then we also see their noble houses uh, like the Bay Fong family uh, which of course Toph is a part of Nick why don't you go ahead and just let Toph. us know why Toph is the greatest character ever created I mean, where to begin? <laughs> she is a comedic genius, just like as a written character. She is a perfect foil to Aang, right? Aang is very much a feels things through his heart, reacts with his with his sight, like very flowy, very goes with it. Toph will fight for her stance and not move whether no matter what is she has to weather. I mean, she's like the youngest of the group. And so she you get a lot of good comedy out of her because of that. And the blind jokes, they're tasteful and they're funny. They are. And she's the one that I mean makes most of them, like 90% of them. Yeah, her, her riffing it, on the that, show is so. never talking down to her. Mm -hmm. I would say that she has like an absolutely brilliant character introduction, like you were mentioning, mm -hmm. right? Like the way that they they take the expectation of oh, the blind bandit is going to be this gigantic, terrifying wrestler capable of taking on the boulder and the hippo, and then it's this four foot little girl. Mm -hmm. who just absolutely demolishes everyone in her path. Mm -hmm. Like, what is not to love? I know. It's brilliant. And we see more, like, so much of her character in that first episode is really, in the way that they juggled it with everything else that was going on in the episode, is quite amazing. But we mm -hmm. see Toph, right, who in her home life is being sheltered 
and being considered helpless, right? The people in her life are looking down on her and talking down to her um, just because she is blind. And yet that very thing is what allows her to be such a powerful earthbender because of that seismic sense. I believe that's like the actual name board or something that mm -hmm. they had. Um, so she's able to have a much deeper connection with the earth. And so that bolsters up her, her earth bending. Um, so I love the way that they did that. Like they took something which otherwise is perceived as a disability and made it the source of all of her strength mm -hmm. in terms of earth bending. So I, I love that they did that. Um, and as you sort of mentioned, the show is very tasteful about the way that characters interact with her um, and how she deals with that in a later episode um, in the anthology one. We'll talk a bit more about that. Yeah, that, that's a very tasteful moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, the way that that's all introduced and we see how she's initially trying to keep Aang and company from revealing to the parents in some way, like letting it out that she is this powerful uh, earthbender on the side uh, but then how she eventually is able to come around when they need help right they got captured and then Toph is sort of released and then Jin Fu and the boulder and all the other wrestlers are about to mm -hmm. take down Aang and Toph is like I can help them I'm gonna do it and we see her absolutely demolish every single one of them by herself Everyone else was just watching. Like Aang wasn't a part of it. They were all they were trying to get him out of the metal shell. Um, and so it was just her demolishing all of them. And so we, the audience, get to see that skill. But then also that's her revealing her strength to her parent. And it's so crushing when she is finally like revealing this is who I am. I you know, you guys have been hiding me from the world and I've been hiding this from you, but this is who I am. I love to fight. I love to earthbend. I'm great at it. I want to go and help these people essentially save the world. And then the parents like, you know what? We've been too lenient with you. You've had too much freedom, even though they have kept her on her premises her entire life. She never had any friends, was unable to interact with anybody else. Right. And mm -hmm. so like that was just crushing. And then of course, thankfully we see she ends up running away and joins the team. But a flawless introduction, I think, to this fourth member of what Team Avatar is. Because I could definitely see, um, like we have for a whole season, dealt with our main three people. We like that dynamic the way it is. But then Toph is able to make that dynamic so much better, like the group dynamic that they have. And then obviously how it connects with the plot is essential. The way that they were able to add this fourth member of the crew and expand the crew, I still think is one of the greatest, I mean, among many great things that these writers do. It's one of the greatest things because it could have gone wrong in so many different ways, but they nailed it. They absolutely nailed it. Absolutely. Incredible. And it was just flawless introduction. There's there's one like interesting little world building note I have on this episode, which is like, the way they treat earthbending at certain points is very telling of how the society views earthbenders. Mm -hmm. Because, like, the they view earthbenders as a valuable asset. 
Yeah. The, 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 the like dojo institution that's primarily run by someone who is fairly high in the government. Mm -hmm. I would imagine like if they've followed that pipeline in any kind of way, they would reveal like, yeah, this is basically how they get their militia. Like this is basically how you enlist kids to go into the army. And that's why, that's why this professional like earthbender wrestling, that's why it's illegal because they don't want these talented earthbenders wasting their time fighting for entertainment when they could be fighting for their country. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like it's such an, such a well thought out portion of the world of just, yeah, they would not allow professional earthbending fights because that needs to be happening on the front lines, not within the city. Exactly. All right. So that was blind bandit. Now we are moving on to another stellar episode Episode 7, Zuko Alone. Another absolute banger. Nick, go ahead, take it away. Talk about why this is one that you were itching to talk about this whole hour. Zuko Alone is so telling of how the world works in Avatar. This is the most raw look at the Earth Kingdom that we, we are given throughout the season. In that it is told exclusively from a single perspective. And that perspective they have that that perspective is a is a particularly interesting one when you consider that it is Zuko, the Fire Lord's son, entering into what is essentially enemy territory. In a lot of ways, you could compare Zuko alone to like the way old samurai movies are written i know a lot of people compare it compare this part of the season to like westerns mm -hmm. and that stuff but westerns pulled a lot of their influence from from samurai flicks yeah of course and a little bit of vice versa mm -hmm. like the exchange went both ways yeah but i see a lot of like akira kurosawa in zuko alone mm -hmm. he's definitely like, like that the lone figure that stumbles into town he's exactly. like that that lone samurai the Toshiro Mifune kind of character who just stumbles into town and has to fight off the, the bandits. But what's different is that the bandits here are actually representatives of the government, the yeah. overarching government, which is such a twist on that sort of it's formula. Such, it's, it's such a twist on that formula. It's, it's so, it gives Zuko a lot of foundational ideas that will go on to tear his hot entire worldview down you could you could accredit zuko's entire arc to this episode yeah like this is his inciting incident mm -hmm. for the most part because this is where he gets the idea that soldiers can be corrupt that you can prejudge people based on where they come from mm -hmm. and that the war is not helping people and a lot of times war doesn't help people mm-hmm it's not good for anyone involved. It's like the first time where he firsthand sees the effect of war and he sees his own effect on the people because after he reveals that he's a firebender, the people, the child who looked up to him so much just abandons him completely and just hates him and exactly. refuses everything that any kind of assistance that Zuko helps just because he's a firebender. And oh yeah, because he says that he's Prince Zuko too. He like declares it to the town. Yeah. For whatever reason. And then they all just 
hate him. Everybody that was around him, the the people he was fighting, the people he was helping, everybody just hates him because of ex- the effect that he has on them. It's an extraordinarily like samurai movie moment mm-hmm. where it's where it's just Zuko reveals his full identity to the town. And they essentially throw tomatoes at him and chase him off, even though they just he just saved the town from the bullies, essentially. Mm-hmm. It is it's brilliant. So clever in subtly weaving all of the parts needed to create the rest of the season, essentially, from Zuko's side. And it tells us so much about the Earth Kingdom. Mm-hmm. Right, there's so much corruption in the Earth Kingdom. There's such a wealth disparity. Mm-hmm. There's desperation. There's, not everyone is living in Bossing Say. Yeah, like some people are out on the out on the borders, losing their kids to the war, fighting to survive and eat every day. Yeah, it is the biggest kingdom, and having so many people and having so many different ways you could create environments in this larger thing which is the closest we get to with avatar to being like a direct analogy to our present day society and they use mm-hmm. that a lot in this season using that wealth disparity using that conspiracy the the corruption that's happening uh all of that stuff that they just melt into the season and they really kick it off with this episode talking about the, the problems with society as a whole rather than individuals within that society yeah, I mean, you you see bits and pieces of it up until this point, mm-hmm. but this is where you really start to pull like the the Earth Kingdom is corrupt line, and this this is where Zuko really starts to notice like the parallels mm-hmm. between the Earth Kingdom and the Fire Kingdom. Right. Yeah, because in this one in particular, it's more so that band of warriors, one of them being mm-hmm. an Earthbender, and they're quote soldiers right but of course they're not really they're just opportunists who are utilizing the war as an excuse to achieve this power over this small town so that Mm -hmm. they just do what they want um and live that high life while these other people are living in fear of them so that i think is an important moment because it doesn't necessarily reflect on like the earth kingdom society like bossing say uh being corrupt it shows the potential is obviously there but i think this is more crucial in showing that certain individuals will crave power and will do whatever is necessary in order to achieve it. Um, And that just because they are in those roles, like these are supposed to be the protectors of the town, right? That's what is mentioned. Just because they have those roles, have those titles, doesn't necessarily mean that's what they truly are, which I think is also important uh, in how that reflects upon the Fire Lord. And, Ozai, because we see in this episode a lot about the politics of the royal family. We yeah. see how Ozai is able to ascend and claim the throne. He wasn't right born as the heir to it. He didn't arrive uh, to being the Fire Lord. He took it. Mm-hmm. We see that interwoven uh, with the Siege of Bossing Se. We get more information about that. We finally understand Iroh did break through the outer wall successfully, but the reason why that siege failed is because his son, Lu Ten, died, and Iroh was left in shambles, and he was unable or unwilling to continue 
the assault on the city. And so they were pushed back and defeated. And we see that Ozai immediately uses as an opportunity in order to say that he should have Iroh's birthright to be the Fire Lord. And it's also interesting how we get a lot of Azula's psychology in this as well. We see her being just absolutely malicious and vile in the way that she gets delight out of tormenting Zuko, yeah. whether it be something comparatively uh, not as serious as like the teasing with May. Um, but then we see her also say, oh, you'll never catch up to me, the prodigy, mm -hmm. when they're doing the firebending demonstration in front of our Lord Azulon. Uh, and the worst bit is her teasing him about Ozai is going to sacrifice Zuko because Zulon required it since he needed to show Ozai the pain of losing a firstborn son mm. um, since he was so callous about Iroh's loss. Azula yeah. is equally callous about the whole Iroh situation um, and she's very, very interested in Ozai becoming the father. Like she's taking mm -hmm. part in that scheming um, with him and so that shows sort yeah. of the power hungriness that she has and how she's brought up in this environment that rewards that kind of cunning thinking and sort of backstabbing manipulation in order to move up the ladder mm. with Zuko things that stand out to me is we finally see some aspect other than Iroh some aspect of his family truly caring about him and that's through his mother Ursa uh, she's very sweet caring maternal towards him but she disappears in this episode. At this point, we don't know why, but we feel it has to in some way relate to the sudden death of Azulon and sudden uh, coronation of Ozai. Mm -hmm. And we see how, yeah, he was left with Azula and Ozai, two people that are willing to stab their family members in the back, be very callous, be very manipulative, be horrible, essentially, in an environment where there is no love, um, any sort of caring is taken as weakness and a vulnerability to be exploited. So we see why it makes sense why Zuko is starved for that love and approval from these key members of his family and why that is such an essential part of his identity that certainly throughout this season we see him trying to move away from. But at the end of the season, he he's not really able to overcome this need for getting that approval from his family. Mm -hmm. I think this episode does a really good let me rephrase what I'm saying I've, seen, I've heard arguments for both sides about whether or not the writers should have included Iroh's son in this episode or whether it should have been reserved for Tales of Ba Sing Se I've heard, I've heard both sides of it but I think they did the right thing by putting it in this episode. Mm -hmm. Because I think what it does to the to the whole like totality of the episode is it puts a really strong parallel between Iroh and the family Zuko is staying with. In that these are people who care about one another and would be willing to do anything to get to help those that they love. And Zuko has never experienced that. Mm -hmm. 
That's why Zuko is actually moved when the mother comes and hunts him down saying that they're after my son. Can you help us? Can you please help us? Mm-hmm. Like, had he not seen that, that like familiarity of this is someone who cares deeply about someone else, the, the way Iroh cares about his son, and maybe even the way Iroh cares about me, he probably wouldn't have done it. Mm-hmm. It's just such a beautiful bow ribbon and like transition into the middle act of Zuko's arc. Mm-hmm. That it, it's just a masterclass in. I mean, we keep using that word in this episode, masterclass, but that's really what Avatar is. Yeah, absolutely. It is a, a writer's paradise. Is this show just everything happens perfectly and i would agree with you i think including two or luten in this episode was the right choice because not only are you setting it up for tales of bossing say having that extra punch in the gut you're also introducing that as quick as possible so that you can have that extra layer on the relationship between zuko and iroh because now zuko now iroh is not just zuko's uh father figure Zuko is also Iroh's pseudo son, taking the place of Luton, mm-hmm. and so it just like it the two marry together really well. Especially when you get to the next episode, the chase, when Iroh has his big return for Zuko, and he in that like that relationship is like cemented in that episode until the end of the season. Yeah, for sure. And just one other element, because again, Zuko alone is one of the fine pieces of television out there that you can really study and get more from it every time you talk about it like mm-hmm. that parallel between the family um like zuko recognizing the love that iroh had for Luten and how the parents were treating their sons both the one that was off at war and the one they still had um like that was something that was swirling around in the background but that since you just brought up nick like that connects as another amazing parallel they had there which i think is also solidified by that knife that he gives to uh lee the kid it was the knife that was gifted to him by iroh that we see in the flashbacks um which he got from an earth kingdom general Mm -hmm. once he broke through the wall and that has never give up on the uh inscription there which of course is very characteristic of zuko that is something that he definitely um is all about keep persisting, keep fighting, very driven in that way. And so his decision to hand that knife over, that piece of Iroh that he has for sure, and I'm sure a piece of himself that uh, he's always clung to, as like, this is another piece of my identity, I don't give up. Him giving that to Lee, um, that gesture, I think, is so critical. Like, it's one of the few times this part in the series that we see Zuko be sentimental, be really caring um and be vulnerable in that way to do something like giving this important gift over Mm -hmm. so that i think was crucial for zuko this is the first episode where we really are able to root for zuko Mm -hmm. in any capacity even when like he was fighting zhao yeah we would prefer zuko over zhao but this is one where like undeniably what zuko do is doing here like freeing that town freeing lee um is good and in the way that he 
because he showed that he was a firebender because he needed to utilize that piece of his identity in order to carry through that good task that he was doing and then he gets rejected for it immediately i think is also such an interesting note that they included here he did the right thing and he was being true to himself in doing that but yet instantly hated because of that part of his identity because of that's how people view the symbol of the fire nation the prince the heir to the throne Mm. absolutely so yeah great great stuff all around in this episode i i do want to i do have to get going kind of soon but i want to leave you guys on like one last fun note to think about on this episode Mm. which is a really interesting way to look at this episode is to see it as zuko is being to lee what azula never was to him Mm. that's a good parallel yeah looking at the episode through that lens produces a lot of interesting results yeah, he's being the sibling that he always wanted, essentially. Yeah. I'll, I will leave you guys on that little interpretation, right, but I do have to get going. All right, well, thank you for stopping by, Nick. We appreciate you for Absolutely. hanging out with us for a good hour and a half, chatting with us about Avatar. Thank you so Absolutely. much for coming by. Yep, thank, thank you so much. Goodbye. All right, see yous. The rest of this discussion on Avatar Book 2 continues on Part 2 of this series, released synchronously as this part, and available anywhere you get your podcasts.